2: From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. What pops into your mind when I say the word psychopath? A serial killer? A dictator? A cutthroat CEO? Your ex? Sure, there are absolutely psychopaths who are violent, power-hungry, and cruelly manipulative, but those traits come in all flavors of humanity. In fact, psychopaths can sound like this guy.
1: Guy on hi.
2: How are you, Dr. Fallon? Well, just call me Jim. Jim, got it. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time today.
1: Sure, happy to.
2: That's neuroscientist Dr. James H. Fallon. He didn't find out he was a psychopath until he saw a scan of his own brain. He argues that though this condition is a wiring in the brain, there are ways that nurture can influence nature. it comes to psychopathy. We'll hear more from him later. According to the National Institute of Health, psychopathy is an antisocial personality disorder present in about one percent of adults, and signs of it can be spotted in children as young as three years old. Psychopaths don't process oxytocin, which means that they are incapable of forming any attachments or developing empathy, For most people, empathy really gets in the way of making selfish choices and acting in ways that can really hurt someone else. So when you don't have empathy as a buffer, it's easier to make decisions that'll lead to emotional abuse or criminal behavior. Up to 25% of the prison population qualifies for the diagnosis. But not all psychopaths are violent or do anything to result in getting locked up. Just because they don't care about your pain that doesn't necessarily mean they wanna cause more of it. And as far as emotions, psychopaths feel adrenaline, but not fear or nervousness. They can feel excitement and satisfaction, but not a long-lasting sense of happiness. They can know cognitively that they made a mistake or they did something wrong, but they lack remorse or any sense of anxiety about it. And they often learn to mask or appear as though they feel these things when they're hanging out with other people. That's called cognitive empathy. Now with all this being said, it's important to know that psychopathy is not a black and white diagnosis. Just like with any other mental health condition, in between the pillars of symptoms that define it, there can be plenty of variations in the ways the condition manifests. Which is why I want you to meet Athena Walker. She's a writer and is very outspoken about her experiences with being a clinically diagnosed psychopath. In fact, we found her on the Q&A website Cora, where she has over 40,000 followers. And she was what got us thinking about doing this episode. I asked her when she realized she was different from most people.
0: Well, I figured out I was different pretty early on. You know, I had a sister, so I'd watch her. And it was pretty evident that she and I had a very different way of seeing the world. I thought that she was... Kind of silly on some of her responses to things. I thought I didn't understand why I had to be the one to go down and turn off the lights in the basement because she was scared and I didn't know what that was. I was just like, all right, I guess that's my job. And I was a little sister, so you do what you're told.
2: <laughs> my understanding is that you don't feel empathy or remorse. Is that about right? That's true. What do you feel?
0: Well, I can feel happiness, contentment. I can be irritated, annoyed. I can be, I don't know that I would say sulky.
2: Pensive? Maybe. Yeah,
0: I could see pensive. I mean, something doesn't quite go the way you wanted it to. It's like, oh, well, that's unfortunate.
2: But it doesn't last. Nope. So you don't ruminate?
0: No. No, there is no like fixation on things that happened in the past. There's no worry about what's going to happen in the future. It's just like, well, you know, it's going to turn out the way it's going to turn out and all that stuff already happened. So whatever.
2: That sounds wonderful.
0: <laughs> That's the only thing I know. So I couldn't, I couldn't tell you if it's wonderful or not compared to someone else's experience. Their experience is important to them, you know, for their reasons. And it's what they know. And this is what I know.
2: I'd love to hear your thoughts on how psychopathy is received or seen, stereotyped around you, and, and that it, it it's never a compliment.
0: No, no, it isn't. Uh, I think a large part of the problem arises from the fact they only study psychopathy in prisons. So there is no other situation in which that happens. You don't study anything else solely in a prison population and then apply to it the fact that the people you study are criminals. It's a conclusion without a start. You can't say, we only study it in this place and these people are criminals, therefore one equates the other, but that's exactly what they do with psychopathy. So yeah, it's it's perceived highly negatively. It's used as a catch-all for every kind of villain you can imagine. Everybody who's a politician who does something wrong is a psychopath. Any ex who did you wrong is a psychopath. Anybody who did A
2: narcissistic s- psychopath.
0: Oh yes, of course. So our narcopath, that's the new one. Ooh, yes. Yes. Imaginary diagnoses abound. Anywhere you go, it's going to be negative and everyone associates it with negativity. And the people who research it do not do anything to deter that. In fact, they lean into it. It sells books. They know that it does. So it, every place you're going to get information about psychopathy is going to have largely negative information associated with it. And then of course it's used as a slur by everyone.
2: So I don't imagine when you meet new people, you say, hello, uh, I'm a psychopath.
0: No, 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 no. There's absolutely no discussion of that. And in fact, if somebody says something about psychopathy, that I know is completely wrong. I don't say a word.
2: (laughs) Not worth it.
0: Yeah, not worth it. Not worth the conversation. Not worth going through that level of, okay, let me take you all the way back to the beginning and explain to you how you're incorrect. It's just not worth the time.
2: If I picture meeting you for the first time at a party or something, and you introduce yourself, I'm Athena, I'm a psychopath. I would think I would be so excited and I would probably ask you all the questions that I've already been asking you. But what would be cool is, If somehow we became friends, and if you said something that hurt my feelings, I would know you aren't wired in the same way that I am. I don't have to take it personally, and I wouldn't be as hurt or maybe hurt at all. Don't you think that most people would respond that way if they knew you were a psychopath off the bat?
0: I think that you are more inquisitive than most people. Most people will assume. Immediately upon hearing that word, oh, this person—nothing they say will be truthful. They are out to get something. They are evil, which is constantly associated with psychopathy. It's—it's—it uh, brings to mind things like Hannibal Lecter, who was not a psychopath. Ted Bundy, who also was not a psychopath. He had antisocial personality disorder, but he had clear indications of things like uh, narcissistic personality disorder as well, which. Can't coexist with psychopathy. It wouldn't make sense. You have to be able to be traumatized and have a very negative relationship emotionally with your parent as a child. And psychopaths can't do that. They're insulated from that. And people have a very strong response. So no, they don't want to talk about it. They 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 want to, or or they'll have have you killed anyone? Like
2: what? No. Why is that where you went? (laughs) Who's the up one here? (laughs) Right? You don't care enough to want to kill somebody. No. At all. (laughs) I understand that when you are out and about and for your your whole life, you have had to mask. You've had to study uh, so-called neurotypicals and, and make sure that you're at least appearing in the ways that we expect you to be, right? Right. I'd love to hear more about that.
0: Other people are the gatekeepers to the world. There's no way around that. If you want to exist in the world, you have to be able to function within it. And that means conversing with people and not placing yourself on the outside intentionally. The only thing that's ever going to do is close doors to you. So blending is very important. And especially when you're young. When you're young and you don't fit in, people get very, very concerned and they have talks about you and they make you talk to other people about why not. And it's a much easier life when you're not constantly having to explain yourself. Also, even if someone knows, there are going to be instances where it's more important to them that they feel a certain way than them understanding that it's not Real, Like if somebody has something terrible happen to them, and they're in my life. It's better that they feel comforted than the comfort have the same meaning to me as it does to them. It's a it's a performative measure, but it's a necessary measure. So if you want to maintain relationships with people, and I do like people, I like being around some people, not all people by any length of the imagination, but the people that I do like, I do want to keep around. If I just treated them like, oh, whatever, they would not want to be around me. It's got to be reciprocal. You know, they have, they're going to try to learn about what makes me different and how to interact with me. I owe them the same thing, even if it doesn't have a feeling for me, It has meaning to them.
2: What has meaning for you? Because I think about the friends in your circle, do they know that you're a psychopath?
0: The ones who are closest, yes, they do. Um, My significant other knows, and the people who are closest to me know. And it's a continually evolving conversation because there's always going to be things that humans interact with one another through a series of assumptions. And that, and that really is what empathy is. People tend to think empathy is feeling the way someone else feels, but that's not true. If you felt the way that they felt, then it would it would be correct most of the time. But for instance, I've, I've spoken about this before. My sister committed suicide. That to, to other people immediately makes them want to feel badly for me. They comfort me. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. That is unnecessary to me, but they feel it. And they think that's an empathetic response. If it was, then they would understand none of that was necessary, but they're feeling how they assume I feel, which is fine. That works for 99% of human interaction. That is completely reasonable, but that's what empathy is. It's functioning on the assumption that the other person is feeling the way that you feel. And usually that's correct. And that's how humans get along. For me, I don't respond that way. So these assumptions are so built into interactions, you don't even realize that there are assumptions. You don't even realize that there is a world outside of it. And for me, I'm always in that world outside of it. So something happens or or, uh, something needs to be done that maybe other people consider particularly unpleasant and they assume I feel the same way. It's always going to be an evolving conversation of how we experience the world differently.
2: When I think about what most human beings need in order to be happy and feel fulfilled, I think they want a sense of connection and belonging. And when I hear you talking about masking and getting along with people, it sounds like you do want to belong.
0: No, I wouldn't say I desire belonging. That's different. I understand the necessity of functioning within a society. I am fine on my own all the time. Like I never, if I never had any reason to interact with another person, I'm fine. It will never bother me. Mm-hmm. But I understand that humans are a part of the world. The things that I enjoy about the world only exist because of other people. People have the assumption that psychopaths see other people as less than or, or ants or whatever, some dehumanizing thing. And the thing is, we don't, or at least I certainly don't. I think of humans as humans. or just don't have anything to do with me. And, that, and therein lies the difference. Psychopaths see humans as yeah, that's, that's them. That's their problem. They're over there. They have no interaction with me until they need to have, until I need to have interaction with them. They have nothing to do with me. I understand that they are fully functional humans with lives, thoughts, dreams, opinions, all of that. And many of them can be very interesting to talk to and very interesting to interact with. And they are the gatekeepers to lots of cool stuff. And I understand all of that. However, until they are interesting to talk to, or they have something that my interaction with them is necessary to get to until then they don't exist to me. That doesn't make them less than they just don't matter. And there, and I think that that, I think that that lack of, uh, feeling a need to connect is one of the things that scares people about psychopathy, because if you don't need other people why wouldn't you do terrible things then? And that goes back to that emotional thing.
2: I'm curious if you've ever tried psychedelics because psychedelics are famous for what they do to emotions and of course the feeling of love. Would you ever try something like mushrooms? Sure. What do you think would happen?
0: Well, the only time I've ever had any kind of hallucinations is when I was uh, sick with meningitis and uh, they were just entertaining to watch. That was all.
2: So you don't expect feelings of love and awe to suddenly appear. Just you're not wired that way.
0: Right. You can't force something to show up when you're not able to feel it in the first place. Would you be able to fly if you've never been able to? Probably not. Probably not going to have a good day when you step off the ledge.
2: That was writer and psychopath Athena Walker. When we get back, what does love mean to her? To me, love is action. It's what you do. It's not a feeling. Then a neuroscientist studying psychopaths finds out via a brain scan that he is one.
1: You know, you're studying something and all of a sudden, you know, Gandalf shows up at your door and you're it.
2: I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me.
1: I don't feel the same.
0: I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to
1: connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today, we're getting to know two people who are psychopaths. In a little bit, you'll meet neuroscientist Dr. James H. Fallon. He didn't realize he was a psychopath until he saw his own brain scan. But right now, let's get back to my conversation with writer Athena Walker. May I ask about some scenarios how you would react? Sure. Okay. If you saw a cute dog hit by a car and killed. Hmm, that's unfortunate. If you saw... An old lady fall down. Pick her back up. It's necessary action. If someone falls and they
0: are in need of how you create the world in which you want to live. If you want to live in a life, in in a world, in a life that's uh, conducive to your well-being, you must provide for others' well-being in turn. It's just a contract. You got born into the world. If you want to make a mess of it, you can, but you're probably going to have a very messy life.
2: You realize you were lied to.
0: Hmm. By who?
2: Your significant other. Hmm.
0: Well, I know him, and if he lied to me, there's got to be a good reason. So I'd want to know what the reason was.
2: You were robbed of your most precious object.
0: No such thing. Oh, of course.
2: You're walking home, and someone's following you, and you don't know who they are, and they're getting closer and closer. Maybe you're sensing that you might be in trouble. What are you feeling? Alert. Okay, alert, not fear.
0: No, not fear, but very alert, very aware, evaluating what I've got at my disposal, where would I be able to go if I need to. I'm not foolish enough to think that I'm going to be able to wrestle some full grown man. I've met plenty of people who think that that they're going to get in some one on one fight and think they're going to prevail because they watch action movies. I know better than that. I'm not I'm not in any way lying to myself like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to beat him up. That's illogical. I know my physical limitations. So I need to look for ways around the situation. What do I have at my disposal? Do I need to pick up something as a weapon? How close am I to home? Do I have a phone with me? You know, just start laying out the uh, possible hypotheticals. What what needs to happen in this situation? Now, Granted, he might not be doing anything. You know, we have fight or flight for a reason, though.
2: So you feel adrenaline, but you don't feel fear or nervousness. Right. You feel excitement, but not happiness. Oh, no, I can be happy. Oh,
0: okay. Yeah, definitely. I can be happy. I can't be sad, but I can definitely be happy. It's not long lasting like other people have. Like, Okay, say my significant other gives me a video game that I really was looking forward to playing. It's like, oh, I want to play that. Now I have it. Once I have it and I get to play it, Cool, but I'm not gonna look at that video game and every single time get a wave of happiness that, oh, he bought this for me and it has this meaning to me. He bought it for me, I got to play it, cool. It's very in the moment. The feelings don't last and the feelings, the uh, memories don't get tied to emotions. It's just an event that happened. So yes, I can feel happiness, but the memory, when I think of that, whatever event is, isn't going to be recalled with, and it was such a happy time. It's more like, oh, yeah, we went and we did this. Like a fact. Yeah, we went to a concert. It was a good concert.
2: But you're not reliving any emotions.
0: Nope. There's none of that. There's no reliving of the emotions of just enjoyment or anything like that. It's just, oh, it was cool. Yeah, it was fun. But it's just relaying that fact.
2: If you don't feel fear, then do you not fear dying?
0: I don't fear dying at all. And I've come very close to it, and everybody has said, "Oh, yeah, it'll change if you get close to it." I almost died from meningitis; didn't change it at all. The only thing it gave me was insight that, "Oh, yeah, maybe next time go to the hospital."
2: Do you have any other psychopaths that you're that are in your life?
0: I know one, and he is exceptionally private, so I don't discuss him very often.
2: Do you wish you had more people in your life who were psychopaths?
0: No. There is no desire to join the psychopathy support group.
2: (laughs) No, but I mean, in terms of like, you don't have to be anybody other than than your utterly genuine self.
0: Well, I suppose that would be true. But then again, I don't really have a desire to have more people in my life than already in my life. I never seek friends. The people who are in my life, I came across in various different respects and I found them to be entertaining, interesting, fun to be around, intriguing Uh, challenging, and we're compatible as people. We get along. We have have enough in common that we can have conversations. We have enough that's completely contrary so we can disagree and learn from one another. That, to me, is what a relationship is about. Somebody being psychopathic doesn't make them inherently interesting. It just makes them have a different brain.
2: Because there are aspects to psychopathy that I find alluring and exciting like the idea of not ruminating over the pains that i've experienced that sounds so freeing Mm -hmm. um i think if i could take a pill and be a psychopath for a day my god i can't believe i'm saying these words but i would totally try it i would i would be so excited to see what that felt like
0: well apparently you can do it with transmagnetic stimulation but it only lasts about a half an hour
2: what is this? Tell me more. Okay.
0: So Kevin Dutton did this. He has a, he had a friend in the research department at, Oh, I think it was at Cambridge uh, who works with a transmagnetic uh, stimulation, which alters the frequencies of how the brain is functioning. They use it to treat depression. So it's called TMS therapy. And he tried this and the person matched the brain circuitry, the, the electric, Whatever the TMS machine measures, it matched it down to what psychopathy is like. And it can alter your brain functioning for a set period of time. And I believe it is only about a half hour to an hour long. And he said he felt like he had had a half a bottle of wine or a whole bottle of wine without the drunkenness. He felt free. He felt very like forward and, and he could do anything. And he, he, he said it was very enjoyable. He, he enjoyed it quite a lot. He, he had, there's a whole write up about this. I think it was in Scientific America and it's a, it's a excerpt from his book, uh, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. He talks about that pretty extensively about his, his experience feeling psychopathy and his father was a psychopath. So it gave him sort of insight to how his father functioned as well. Yeah, very interesting. But apparently, yeah, you can do it. But you have to have a friend in a research department who is willing to dial your brain in that way, because I don't think they offer the psychopath experience at
2: the TMS clinics. Sounds like an amusement park, the psychopath experience. (laughs) (laughs) It would be funny. It would be something. So that being said, would you take a pill to be so called neurotypical for a day?
0: If I was going to do that, I would want to try to do it as absolutely scientifically as possible and try to really map the differences between like this is empathy, this is sadness, this is jealousy, this is and be able to actually do it with with people who are researching this sort of thing and really record it and get like good data out of it. I mean, sure, the emotional experience might be interesting and I'm willing to try anything on a lark, but I think it would have more value as a research experiment. And so, yeah, I would definitely do it for that.
2: What do you think about the idea of God? I know enough to know that I don't know. And
0: I'm good with that. I don't need to know. I can I could ruminate about it and sit there and think about, well, you know, I mean, is it logical to think that there is a God, there's not a God? What is that going to do? Is that going to answer anything for me? I could probably, I can look around and see things I can't explain. I don't need to explain them. It's stuff I don't understand. I'm good with that.
2: What do you hope happens after we die?
0: I don't really have a hope for it. It's not really how my mind works. I don't even have a hope for tomorrow. I just live now. And what happens, happens. I'll see it when I get there.
2: Can we talk about love? Sure. Do you experience it?
0: Chemical love? No. Not at all. Uh, Psychopaths don't uh, process oxytocin. We have a mutated oxytocin receptor, which means no chemical love, no bonding, which is why psychopaths don't bond. Uh, we don't experience the chemical component of trust, which I did not know for a very long time, that that was emotional for people. I, to me, trust is investment. You, I trust you because you've demonstrated to me you are worthy of being trusted. There is no emotional experience there. So for me, watching other people trust someone that they shouldn't, and it, then they get betrayed and feel... Well, however you feel about it, very upset, obviously, that made no sense to me until I figured out, oh, this is actually an emotional experience for them. So the same thing with chemical love versus cognitive love. To me, love is action. It's what you do. It's how you how you interact with that person and what value if they're bringing value to you, how much value you are investing in them in in return. And so to me, it's love is action. It's not it's not a feeling.
2: So that being said, if your partner, I don't know, had an affair with the next door neighbor, just an, <laughs> just a thought, how would you feel?
0: Bye. <laughs> That's it. Bye. You're done. There's nothing to talk about. There's no conversation to have. Any anger? Revenge? No. Just get out. Don't want to see you again. And at, at that point, when somebody's an ex... I don't think about them again.
2: When I hear that, I think, God, I wish I could do that. And I bet a lot of people here in our conversation also think, God, I wish I could do that. And I know this is a wiring thing. You can't just give me some good advice and I'll be like, Oh, just don't care about it. Oh, just move on. It's not how it works.
0: Okay. But I can give you a different perspective. Please. I st- I have good memories of, you know, things that I do, but I don't code them emotionally. There is no like, okay, so if I go and I have a lovely dinner sitting across from my significant other and we have a a great night laughing and talking about whatever, once that event is over, it gets filed as we went out to dinner, we had great conversation, we drank some wine, but there's no emotion that is going to ever be coded with that memory. So for me, it's just something that happened. That's it as much as you have to look back on some of your memories as painful, you are going to look back at these other memories as joyful. And you're still going to experience that joy, even if it's tinged with a bit of that hurt. So unless you want to sacrifice that experience, then you would not want to be wired like me. One goes with the other. No emotional coding of negative memories. No emotional coding of positive memories. And I'm guessing you value your positive memories quite a lot. I do. Because most people do.
2: What I find really interesting in me as you and I talk is, first of all, I really like you because you're (laughs) so straightforward and honest. That is one of my most treasured traits in human beings. And I also just feel... Like I understand you to the degree to which a total stranger can understand you. And so I I really, I really like you. (laughs) And I wonder how much of the you that I've been talking to this whole time has been Athena Walker masking and how much of the you that I've been talking to this whole time has been the real Athena Walker.
0: Okay. So that's an interesting question. If you're just talking to me and I have no mask at all, I'm very self-focused. I don't consider other people anytime that I do. That is me intentionally considering them and putting myself like, oh, yes, this person has other things going on in their life. What are those things? Because I'm sure they're important to them. So that's masking. The bluntness is much more me. People have asked me before, aren't you worried someone's going to recognize you? No, I'm not, because the people who know me outside of the house in which I live and the people who are closest to me, they do not hear that part of me because I have a very different voice and a very different way of interacting with them than I do when I'm being more myself. Like this is the level of masking, maybe slightly more, that I give the people who are closest to me because I do need to consider them. They do need to be considered. There's no reason to stay in someone's life if they're constantly self-focused and don't give a crap about you in any way, or at least act like they do. I can't emotionally do that, but I can certainly physically and cognitively make those efforts. So that's the level of masking um, maybe to a slight more degree that I'm doing with you to give you a more clear idea of what it is.
2: You have a significant other. How long you been together?
0: I don't know. Over a couple decades.
2: Are you utterly yourself around him?
0: I still need to mask to make sure his needs are met. If I didn't do that, I would not be holding up my end of the bargain. So I'll give an example, actually, that James Fallon has used. He talked about when he started making an effort for his wife. Like if he got up to get something out of the kitchen, he started to think about, oh, maybe she would like something as well. And so he would ask. This is very much how the mind works. Like I wouldn't even consider, it's not like I and denying somebody something from the kitchen or that I'm just intentionally being mean to them. I just don't consider it. It does not cross my mind. So I'll sit there and I'll walk in the kitchen like, oh, say I'm going to get a glass of wine. Would you like a glass of wine? Yes or no? If I'm not masking a little bit, I will not even, con- even think about asking. Like I will figure if you want one, you'll just say something and then I'll get it for you. And then that's it. And I always have this rule with people. If you want something from me, ask me, because the chances are I am not going to figure it out without you saying at least something.
2: I wonder to what degree we all mask.
0: Oh, I'm sure. Absolutely. The difference is masking for neurotypicals tends to be being on their best behavior, but it's still the core of their personality is still on display. With the psychopath, it's different in the sense that when I'm masking, especially with people that don't know me well, they need to see all of the things they expect to see from a neurotypical interaction. So all the emotional feedback loops have to be there for them to feel comfortable. And when they're not, they feel very uncomfortable. And that is when people will pick up something's wrong. And that's actually, I think, what people pick up when they interview psychopaths, actual psychopaths in prison, because there's no reason to put on any airs. They're just sitting there and they know they're caught, doesn't matter to them, and they'll just have a conversation. And that sense of, we're not on the same playing field, we're not playing by the same rules becomes very, very evident. And it's very disconcerting. I think that's what makes people the most uncomfortable. And if I don't want people to be uncomfortable around me, I have to emulate that what makes them feel normal.
2: And you want to do that with them, because they are the gatekeepers to living on planet Earth and having a good time.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, you live in a planet that is primarily made up of people who are used to interacting a certain way, and you don't interact that way. People are not conforming to you. That's not the way it works. That would be just silly. And I know some people think that, well, everybody should just conform to how I see the world. No, they shouldn't. You're the odd man out. You conform. You have to figure out how to make your life the best you can in the world in which they have constructed.
2: I can't wait for people to hear this because since our last conversation, it's come up in in my conversations, just out and about, people asking like, "Oh, what's what's the next episode? What are you working on?" And I'm really excited about how very wrong people will realize they are.
0: Oh, read the comment sections on some of the articles I've done. There will be a number of people will tell you how wrong you are <laughs> and that I have lied to you about everything. And she's just a psychopath and she's playing you. And. Yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, they're super fun because people are completely just sold on this notion that psychopaths are a certain way and if they're any other way, it's obviously a lie. Yeah, every time, every freaking time, man.
2: Well, Athena Walker, thank you so much for talking with me.
0: You're very welcome, it was lovely.
2: As a bonus, we'll have my much longer conversation with Athena in our podcast feed where you'll find out, among other things, her views on comedy, music she loves, and if reincarnation is real, would she want to come back as a psychopath? Oh, hell yes. Search for Audacious with Kion Wolf in your podcast feed, and we'll have a link so you can check out her writing at ctpublic.org slash audacious. After the break, when Dr. Jim Fallon saw that his own brain scan was that of a psychopath, how did that affect how he made his way through the world?
1: I decided to manipulate myself. So I tried to use my own pathology to say, I can beat this. Nobody else can beat this. No other second person, but I can. I'm Kyone Wolf.
2: This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Dr. James H. Fallon's story is kind of wild. He's a neuroscientist who was studying brain scans of psychopathic killers. But he was also studying the brain scans of people who have Alzheimer's. Now, because his wife's family had been deeply afflicted with Alzheimer's, he scanned her brain, their kids' brains, his brain, and, well, here's a clip from him telling a story at the moth.
1: So I was going through the pile of my family's pet scans and i got to one on the bottom and i thought it was in the wrong pile because i also had all these killers brains in another pile on the desk and i said i've mixed them up and i looked at it and it looked like the worst case of of these uh you know psychopathic killers brains and i looked down and it was me it was my name
2: so okay what did he do after he saw that scan
1: Men just laughed I said, I know myself. I'm not that guy. Because it's a quirky story became sort of well-known because it's such an odd thing. You know, you're studying something and all of a sudden, you know, Gandalf shows up at your door and you're it. You know, I thought it was hysterical. And it was only later after I started asking people, tell me what you really think of me, that they started to say, well, you do things that are sort of psychopathic. Now, Now, this is I don't mean this in any braggy sort of way. It's just the way, the way it is. So you know, I'm the chief scientific officer of a genetics company, and what we're trying to do is to treat neurological and psychiatric disorders by reducing anxiety and depression. And I'm involved in four other companies. If they were really worried, if I was doing things that were immoral and or unethical, or they they wouldn't have me. You know, because like I'm okay. So when I found when when that pattern, when my the technicians who brought me the scans, I said, this is hysterical. I'm not that guy. And I know. But then in talking to people, some said, remember that thing you did when you abandoned me and you, you know, you manipulated me and all that. Remember that? That was psychopathic. But I'm not really, I'm more like what's called a pro-social. You know, I have traits, but I don't have all of these florid sort of behaviors that are. Really bad. I just don't have them.
2: Behaviors are certainly one thing. I wonder if I could ask you a series of like circumstances how you would feel. Like nobody's gauging you, no one's measuring you, no one's seeing you, you're alone. If you saw a really cute dog being hit by a car, how would you feel?
1: Well, with Roxy, the dog. Yeah, the dog. When she died, I was very upset. I mean, it's a dog. So I get upset over a dog dying and not over humans that are close to me dying. So, I, you know, how does that fit in?
2: Yeah, you do not act like I think most people think a psychopath acts. What do you think is different about you? Why Why are you so different?
1: Well, I grew up in a, this wonderful family. And, you know, when I went to high school, my mother uh, took my teachers aside saying, keep him busy. Because if he if he's not busy, he can be real trouble and he can be very strange. I've always had adults in my family, whether they're priests or rabbis or teachers, professors who say there's something dark and wrong about you. It's in your eyes. It's nothing you do, but there's something very unsettling and dark. I always had this from the time I was very young. And so I was, you know, I was a little bit of a strange uh, guy. And and they, she said, make sure to keep him in a lot of activity. So I was always in a lot of contact sports. So I was able to work off all that aggression. And all those activities, say, so get them into acting classes, you know drama classes which I did, and art classes and in playing music. So I did all those artsy humanity things and and had this wonderful matriarchy who just knew how to deal with us. And I think that was the difference so for
2: people who have children who may embody some traits of psychopathy. You had uh, this piece, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Psychopaths. Yeah, right. I guess, what what would a parent look for, and what could they do?
1: Well, you know, I, I worked with a pediatric neurologist who was a good psychiatrist, too. And he said he could tell a kid who was going to be a psychopath after working with the kid when he was two or three years old. What would he spot? Well, this is, you know, it's kind of an art, right? He could tell that they were, and since he would see them when they grow up, they'd be real full-blown psychopaths. And he, and he could read that. And, you know, he said they had a way of looking right through you. If you're looking at the TV, they'll stand right in front of you. Like you don't exist. It's like, you don't exist.
2: So I want to say like, what can be done to prevent them from being uh, malignant, uh, harmful to themselves or others? psychopath as opposed to a psychopath who just isn't really interested in people, but they mask and they know how to do it and they don't mean any harm. It's just, it's just, they don't operate the way that maybe I do. Like, is there, is there anything anyone can do? Or is, do you think this is like 100% wiring?
1: I've never, you know, all the, the scans we've done and all the people have looked at and includes d- dictators over 4,000 years, including Putin and others. But, Every one of them was abused early in life or came from a broken family. It's broken families and uh, uh, early abuse. That is the epigenetic trigger. So if you have the genetics, if you have the genes that are associated with the personality traits of a psychopath, if they become permanent and they, they're out of context, you know, many of the things, you can have these genes and just be very aggressive but it doesn't make you a killer or, or a full-blown psychopath.
2: I mean, you've got these genes, and you seem warm. You seem kind. You seem even at times jovial. And uh, so, yeah, clearly.
1: Yeah, I think that was my uh, my the matriarchy I was brought up in, and the patriarchy. They were all just fantastic, and and very smart, and and very caring. So, I, I think I just got lucky. So I have those I I have those traits right of some coldness but i it's not permanent i don't do it it's in context it's when you do things out of context there's time for sex there's time for violence but if you start doing it when it's not appropriate to the culture you're in then it's called psychopathy as opposed to just obnoxious behavior you know none of none of the behaviors by themselves are are, are evil it's when they're done out of context that it becomes evil
2: Can we talk about love? Yeah. Do you think you feel the same kind of love that I do?
1: After talking to you, yes. I think we see love the same way. As this all-encompassing wrapping that is so pervasive and so intensely wonderful, I get a sense that you feel that too.
2: And the fact that you get a sense that I would feel that says something about you and your capability of being empathetic.
1: Maybe. I mean, I may just be, but I, I mean, I, I definitely get that from you.
2: Yeah. I think that when we look at psychopathy and, and again, you're, you're an example of how varied this is, that you can have this brain wiring and still feel love, feel awe, feel connection, uh, compassion. And I think that's confusing to a lot of people just based on what we've that we've known
1: one way that I was able to, you know, get outside of myself was to look at guys my age that had kids and grandkids or in the same sort of position and watch what they did. And they did things I don't do like what well, they were really sacrificing themselves, they would really sacrifice and they would sacrifice in a way that I hadn't been, but I have learned lately to do, you know, but that I wasn't doing before. So I was looking at that and I said. I should be the same as them, but I'm not. I don't do those things. I don't do all those caring things, and I should be. And so, that made me think that there was something wrong. That's what I I just evaluated all my behaviors and how I was interacting with people, and I started with my wife. And you know, I would keep track of what I was doing. Am, Am I doing all the things that a good guy would do? A good, caring, loving not a guy, but a husband, a boyfriend, Yeah, would do. And I was saying, no, I'm not doing that. You know, these are some things that are, you know, just being a good roommate, picking up after yourself and, but also, you know, going to funerals and going to everything that she wants to do. A lot of it's simple stuff. And when I was looking at it every day, I found out I was doing many times the most selfish thing. And so what I did was I decided to manipulate myself. So I tried to use my own pathology to say, I can beat this. Nobody else can beat this. No other second passing, but I can, see. And I would change the way I interacted with my wife. And after a few months, she said, what's come over you? I said, what do you mean? She says, you're really a great guy now.
2: So on a day-to-day basis, what do you do to get along with people? What is that like?
1: Well... I've got a large ego and I I am manipulative, but I have spent time trying to change it. But I have to do it every day. Every time I interact with my wife or other people, I have to say, be a good guy and be caring and don't do selfish things. And I became exhausted every day. I went from sleeping four hours a day to sleeping 10 hours a day. (laughs) I found it was really exhausting being a nice guy, a good guy, you know? But I was able to beat it, I think. But anything I have, you know, it isn't really wisdom. It's it's what everybody knows that really works. And in, and if you don't have it, you're in trouble. So the whole thing about early family life, I mean, I couldn't be more critical. I mean, that's the biggest thing. So, you know, it's like, you know, you treat your neighbors well and you treat your neighbor's kids well and you treat your kids and everybody well. And that that's a way to prevent, you know, the really bad part of it. But do you really want to prevent people from being outgoing and manipulative and having this sense of, you know, the psychopaths have this thing called fearless dominance, which is charisma. So when you walk into a room, you got that light around you. And that can be used for very positive things. You can do a lot of good. And without that, you don't have the juice. A lot of people want to do that, but they don't have the juice that psychopaths or borderline psychopaths or pro-social psychopaths have which is a lot of energy and a lot of interest in getting stuff done, which they do. You know, who's willing to go climb the mountain to go to the other side? Well, people with a bit of psychopathy are very willing to climb that mountain and go to the other side. But so you got to separate out the traits that people have that are appropriate to situations versus ones that are inappropriate and and avoid the people that do those inappropriate things. You just got to walk away from them whether it's in an office or, you know, at a bar, you're not going to change these people.
2: Well, Jim Fallon, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: Okay. It's great. It was great talking to you.
2: We'll have a link to Dr. Fallon's book, The Psychopath Inside, a neuroscientist's personal journey into the dark side of the brain at ctpublic.org slash audacious. Jessica Severindi-Martinez put all of her feelings into producing this episode of Audacious with help from Khalil Rahman, Meg Fitzgerald, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford with help from our interns, Carol Chen and Stacey Addo. Definitely check out that extended interview with Athena on our podcast feed, and check out ctpublic.org audacious for all sorts of amazing conversations. Send me your thoughts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kayon Wolf. Or you can send me an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.